0: And they start trying to create crops that do two things. One, crops that can produce their own pesticide, BT crops, which would be familiar to people in the Punjab. You know, these are crops that have a gene from uh, a bacterium called Bacillus, Bacillus thuringiensis. That's BT. That is this natural occurring bacteria that produces a pesticide that works as an insecticide. They wanted to find a way to take the gene from that bacterium and put it into plants so that it could produce its own pesticide. But the other bigger and more important project for them was figuring out a way to make crops tolerate heavy spraying of glyphosate, Roundup, their branded and patented trademark product, Roundup.
1: Hi, I'm Sukhraat Singh from Sikh Archive and welcome to the 38th episode of our podcast series of conversations with historians, authors, academics, researchers and activists on topics related to areas of expertise on Sikh or Punjabi history. In this episode, we are joined by Bato Elmore, who is an award-winning professor and writer who investigates the impact of big business on our environment. He teaches as an associate professor of environmental history and is a core faculty member of the Sustainability Institute at the Ohio State University. And today we will be discussing his latest book, Seed Money, Monsanto's Past and Our Food Future, which explores the history of Monsanto, how they influence our food system, their role in the industry of agrochemicals, as well as genetically engineered seeds. Monsanto has had a huge impact on Punjab, such as the debt crisis farmers are facing, the cotton industry, and the alarmingly high rates of fertilizer use, to name but a few. And it's for some of those reasons that I'm really excited to share this episode with you all. But before we start, a quick message about our sponsor of this episode, from Sikh Student Learning, which is an educational resource that is developing a comprehensive Sikh Studies modular program for Sikh children aged between 4 to 16 years, with the option to take exams for modules and obtain certificates of achievement. And right now they've published a new series of Gurmukhi Learning workbooks for those looking to learn how to read and write Punjabi. They are an excellent resource for new parents wanting to teach their children the culturally rich mother tongue that is Punjabi. You can find them at uk. But now, back to the podcast that we have planned for you today. Who is Bartow Elmore?
0: Well, thank you so much for having me. And uh, this is the best part about writing a book, is meeting people you know, from all over the world and to think, Critically about um, how history, I think, can be useful for creating a more sustainable future. And that's really what I do. I guess, you know, in a nutshell, I'm I'm an environmental historian at Ohio State University in the United States. We're one of the largest universities in the country, and we're kind of a fusion of the humanities, but also ag sciences. We're we're really both strong in arts and sciences, but, but specifically agricultural science, and which has been great as a historian, having access to some of the top weed scientists in the country, top agronomists, top agricultural uh, researchers, it was really helpful in writing this book on the history of Monsanto. So I'll back up and say that my first book uh, was on the history of Coca-Cola and its environmental impact around the world i traced out the story of how coca-cola extracted natural resources from really everywhere i looked at the table of a, the back of a coke can and made that my table of contents for the book so basically every ingredient in coke was a different chapter and i traveled around to peru to uh, to india actually to look at the story of water extraction in rajasthan kerala and other places To think about the environmental footprint of this firm that started, I should mention, in my hometown. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, in the South, the American South. And that's where I really got hooked on on writing this book on Coca-Cola. It was in the process of writing that book that I I came across this weird connection to a company called Monsanto. It turns out that the company that supplied Coca-Cola with its caffeine was this company from St. Louis, this chemical company called Monsanto that was started in 1901. And, and that's where I first got interested in Monsanto. I traveled to St. Louis when I was writing the Coke book. I was given access, actually, to the corporate records of Monsanto. And at that moment, I it kind of opened up the world of Monsanto to me. And I knew at the time that I had to finish this Coke book, but I was going to come back and dive into the story of this, this firm that Starts as a chemical company producing caffeine, saccharin, and artificial sweetener for Coke. But then, as we all, many of us know, by the end of the 20th century, we've become the largest seed seller in the world. And so I finished that book uh, this year. Uh, It came out in 2021. Uh, The book's called Seed Money Monsanto's Past and Our Food Future. And uh, it took about 10 years to write a decade, if you think about the very beginning, initial stages of this, about a decade to look at the history of this firm that I think has had such outsized influence on the environment around the world. And so that's where I'm at now. And, uh, and kind of looking back on the process, I'm really happy with how this book landed because it's, it's put me in a position to really talk about important things, about the future of food, about agriculture, about things I really care about. Um, and I'm, I think your audience does too.
1: And just before we look at Monsanto, Could you please elaborate more on what is entailed in studying environmental history? If I had to guess, I'm thinking it's maybe the macro history of agricultural revolutions, maybe looking at the privatization of land, colonial conquests, and maybe more recent policies such as the Green Revolution?
0: Yes, so you you nailed some of them. I mean... I got to be honest with you, I didn't even know environmental history existed when I went to grad school. So if, if someone's listening to this and thinking, ah, I feel like I'm out of the loop, well, I was out of the loop, but quickly got pulled into the loop. I, I went to graduate school at the University of Virginia and uh, also in the U.S. Um, and, and got my Ph.D. there. I didn't find this field until my second year of graduate work there in the early two mid to mid 2000s. I, I was researching on the history of the American South, really, uh, when I first went to grad school, and then took this course, Environmental History. Well, that's interesting, you know. And yeah, it, it just blew me away. It was just everything I've always wanted. I, I really, when I was an undergrad, I had studied biochem. I, I loved science and and I loved environmental issues. I, I think to be fair and open, um, you know, I'm someone who cares about deeply about environmental issues. And so the, the, the thought that I could take my profession history and also do environmental work was, was like, yeah, sign me up, let's do this. And so, so I changed really. I mean, it was really kind of <laughs> crazy story because I go to study with this like kind of luminary really in the field of the American South. And then I kind of have to sit down in his office and say, uh, sorry, man, I, got, I, I really want to do environmental history, which is why I wrote about Coca-Cola to be honest with you is because I, I wanted to keep that Southerner history of the American South focus. Coca-Cola being from Georgia, being from my hometown was a way of kind of staying in that field, but moving in the realm of environmental history. But, but quickly I've moved beyond and really environmental history is a field that started roughly in the late 1960s, early 1970s. It was a product of the modern environmental movement, especially here in the United States. Much of it was focused originally on the American West and on stories about water scarcity and environmental degradation as a result of settlement of the American West. That, of of course, has has blown up. As you mentioned, the field now is interested in looking at all sorts of questions globally, uh, whether it be questions about the Green Revolution and its impacts in India, uh, questions about climate change, which has become a huge issue, of course, in the field recently. I should mention that the field really is simply defined. It is essentially the history of how humans have both impacted the natural environment, but also the ways in which nature has acted as an agent to shape human history. And and really, for so long, I think nature was the backdrop to history. It was just like the setting. And I think what environmental historians have tried to say is, no, 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 without understanding ecological history, the links between humans and their natural environment, we can't really fully understand anything, whether it be the, the American Revolution or whether it be you know, the partition of India, well, whatever it might be, that you have to think about environmental issues if you're going to write a, a complete history of the world. So so that's what I do. And uh, man, am I, I feel lucky. I feel like it's just it's great to wake up every day and feel like the history that you're writing is about thinking about how to, can the past inform us as we try and create a more sustainable future. I can't think of something more exciting to do on a day-to-day basis. And one of the reasons I, I wanted to come on your podcast is because you told me you were a teacher and I started out as a high school teacher and One of the reasons I believe in what you're doing in the the podcast like this is because I know that Bart Elmore sitting here now, it's taken me four years to learn this. I'll be 40 in, in a week. I'll have my 40th birthday, a milestone. But, you know, it took me this long to really realize that it is in the teaching. It is in who's listening to this podcast today someone who who will have a brilliant idea and help design things it's not actually me but it's in that process of, of exchanging these ideas especially with younger people that gives me hope you know and i'm sure you you experience this too in the classroom um giving people the skills they need in terms of math or whatever it might be to go design a better future so again just to thank you for for having me on and uh, for the work that you do as well
1: i really appreciate that and it's one of the reasons why I try so hard to offer a wide range of topics, because there are so many different things of the past that form our present, which is why it's really important to know the world that came before us.
0: Exactly. And and you see, you know, I think we'll probably talk about some pretty dark things today when we talk about the history of Monsanto, because there's, there, there's a lot of sort of history. But I actually have a lot of hope, weirdly. And I think it's partially by being in the classroom with younger people who I think get it and who are you know finding ways to um to be a part of the solution i mean and you could argue right now it's greta thunberg and others who, you know, who are who are helping you know really push the dial in ways that i think so to the young people out there this conversation is for you in many ways and and i'm excited to see what it's create, and also for the adults <laughs> for the older people as well i, I don't think uh, we should put all this weight on young people one person told me that it, I recently had a conversation with Jane Fonda, the American actress who became a big activist here in the U.S. She was known, of course, for her protests against the Vietnam War when she was younger. And she told me she kind of laid that on me. She said, don't put all this pressure on those young people, Bart. You know, it's up to the adults who are in Congress right now and in other places to do the right thing too. And I think that's, that's a fair statement. I, I think sometimes it's easy to pass the buck to the younger generation. I'm not trying to do that, but I am inspired by them. I think that's important.
1: Now, looking at the history of Monsanto, especially its role in Punjab, it kind of runs parallel with the history of the Green Revolution. Could you please elaborate more on that regarding the history of pesticides and fertilizers, how did Monsanto come into the picture?
0: Yeah, let us see if I can unpack that a little bit for folks that are interested in that history. It was really wild to go back in the archives and kind of be waiting for the story of agriculture because in a way, you know, in the early part of the story, this is a company that doesn't really have much investment in agriculture. It certainly doesn't own any seed companies at all. Um, we're not going to really see the companies starting to think about and be aggressive in terms of acquisitions of seed companies until the 80s, 90s. And really the 90s is where that, that major push to kind of consolidate uh, control of seed companies sets in. And even when it comes to herbicides, obviously, I think listeners will be familiar with glyphosate, the active ingredient in a, in a brand called Roundup that Monsanto created in 1970. There you go, 1970. I mean, some of these things, it took a while in the history because I wanted to start in the beginning in 1901 and figure out how did we get here? And if we do that, you know, what's interesting is again, in 1901, when Monsanto is being founded, the main thing that it's producing are chemicals really for the soft drink industry and for the food industry, specifically saccharin, this artificial sweetener that was some 300 to 400 times more sweet than sucrose, regular t- sugar, and also caffeine. That became one of their most profitable products that they were selling to Coke, as I mentioned earlier. And that's 1901. And at that point, you know, I think we think of Monsanto, especially, you know, in the context of India and other places, as this big monopoly that has great control and that is this kind of... Uh, boogeyman in so many ways in the agricultural industry. But at that point, Monsanto is a little weakling. I mean, and I really wanted to point that out in this book that to understand how Monsanto becomes what it is, you have to know that it's scrappy at the beginning. It is is not the dominant chemical concern of the late 19th century and early 20th century. It is trying to catch up to all those German firms that are Leading the way at this time, Bayer, which of course is going to buy Monsanto in 2018. It's a great irony in all this, right? That Monsanto from the very beginning wants to be independent of these big conglomerates. You could say it's a kind of anti monopoly move, is for Monsanto to be separate from the big powerhouses in Germany, BASF, other big chemical companies. And and that's the hotbed for organic chemistry in the early 1900s. And The guy who starts Monsanto in 1901, John Queenie, Q-U-E-E-N-Y. He's from St. Louis, lives in St. Louis. He actually was born in Chicago. But he's 40 years old when he starts this. He's a drug salesman. He knows almost nothing about chemistry. I tell a story where, in the book where he he meets with a senator in uh, the 1920s who's grilling him on the chemicals he's producing in his facilities. And he, he has to say to the senator, Senator, sir, you're getting into chemistry. On which matter, I'm rather weak, you know? And, and I think all this matters, you know, to, to get back to your point that understanding history matters because if we if we understand that Monsanto was the scrappy company trying to, to make it in a world where there were much bigger monopolies, much bigger chemical companies. I mean, DuPont in the United States was orders higher, bigger than Monsanto, uh, but but BASF and Bayer were even bigger. There's a hastiness, you know. There's a there's a kind of rush to catch up. You see this in the early part of the books. This kind of effort to cut corners or try and, and produce products as fast as you can. And and in in that process, of course, uh, workers and others um, are going to come down with some pretty nasty injuries as a result of all of this, and then in some cases death. So. To start the story, if you're going to understand Monsanto, you got to start by understanding it's this kind of, it's trying to play catch up. There are a bunch of other chemical companies, and it in 1901 is trying to to make a name for itself. And it starts with saccharin, goes into caffeine. And if it weren't for Coca-Cola and those huge contracts that they signed, this company wouldn't even exist. And I'll say one other thing about the history. You might be wondering, where does Monsanto come from? It comes from the, the name of his wife, Olga Monsanto. Who is of Spanish ancestry? Uh, Monsanto has kind of Spanish uh, origins. And he's naming it after his wife, but not necessarily because he loves her, even though I'm sure he did. It's because he is working as a drug salesman for another company when he's trying to start Monsanto. Again, I want you to just see it's kind of the scrappy startup in 1901. And he doesn't want there to be confusion. If he names it Queenie Chemical Company, well, People might raise eyebrows. So he calls it Monsanto, and that's where the name comes from. But it doesn't have anything to do with ag chemicals. And it's not really until the 40s and 50s that we start seeing Monsanto really investing in that. So why does Monsanto get into ag chemicals? And I think one answer to that is what's happening, especially in the U.S., because this is a, Mon- this is a U.S.-based company at the time. By the 20s, they do have operations overseas. But for the most part, their big market is the U.S. And we can see very clearly in the 20s and 30s a kind of factory farming taking off in the United States, being very much encouraged by the USDA, our Department of Agriculture here in the United States, which is building out these extension service agents at universities like mine, uh, public universities that are ag schools in the U.S., going out in the countryside and kind of teaching principles that I think years later we describe as agribusiness, you know, thinking about agriculture as a business, as a kind of factory-like operation that requires, you know, uh, chemical inputs and synthetic fertilizers, ultimately, when we're thinking about 30s and 40s, especially as we get into the 40s, tractors and mechanization, you know, the first tractors are rolling off the lot. You see some of these in the nineteen teens that are pretty wonky. They're getting perfected by the 20s. So you've got this. And then, of course, you have this Great Depression hit in the 30s and the New Deal in the United States, this government program to try and figure out how we're going to support farmers. And there's a lot of federal funds that goes into agriculture that ostensibly is designed to help farmers and maybe in the minds of policymakers to help those small farmers in some cases, right? But what ends up happening is a lot of those federal dollars helps to facilitate the kind of mechanization of agriculture, the consolidation of of land ownership in many ways. And so by the 40s and 50s, what you have as we go into the World War II and out of World War II into the Cold War is you have a very different style of agriculture. Now you've got synthetic fertilizers being used on farms, You know, tractors being used on a much higher percentage hybrid seeds have emerged, especially in the corn markets and others, and this kind of breeding technology and seed companies and corporatization of seed companies. So we have a much more corporatized and large-scale kind of farming operations by the 40s and 50s, a kind of factory farming. And from the perspective of a company like Monsanto, well, heck. That's hundreds of millions of acres of opportunity. What a big market that we could seize on. And what's interesting, you mentioned fertilizers. This was interesting to find in the record. Monsanto actually choose, thinks about fertilizers as one of their places they want to go heavily into. But initially, they, 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 they look at the metrics there and they say, you know, what? there's a lot of companies and there's competition in the fertilizer industry. We could probably make more money off the more specialty chemicals, insecticides and herbicides. And that's really where they start to push their specific expertise. And that also comes from where they're positioned. Again, they've been, you know, they've been kind of trying to play catch up and they're thinking, wow, these new insecticides and herbicides, a big area of growth. We could really try and focus our capital there and try and make big inroads. So, in the 1940s for example, they produced DDT, an insecticide that most people know became quite notorious for the effects it had on wildlife. Of course, the the, um, concerns that that, that Rachel Carson raised in her book, Silent Spring, about DDT's effect on human health. They called their DDT in the 1940s, Santo Ban. They weren't the only producer of DDT. There were many companies that were producing it. They had their own brand of this. And they also started producing a wide variety of herbicides. 245T becomes a very popular herbicide for them. Wonky names for your listeners, 245T. I always I often tell students, I think part of it is, you know, don't ask too many questions, right? If you name something 245T, you know, a lot of this stuff was designed not necessarily for the end consumer, like you and I, but for specific people, for farmers. And I think that's one of the things to point out on Santo too at this time. Their slogan was, Serving industry, which serves mankind. What Queenie and others realized is that we don't have to convince consumers that these things are safe or whatever. Really, we have to to convince a much smaller population, farmers in the U.S. or in the case of industry, you know, a specific group of industry people. And if they make the decision to accept this stuff, wow, because of the spread of these big farms and these big operations, we're going to make a lot of money. So 245T was one of the herbicides they make, chlorinated hydrocarbon that later it's very clear from scientific research uh, is deeply problematic because it has a contaminant in it called dioxin which Dow Chemical writing to Monsanto in the 1960s said was the most toxic compound they'd ever seen. This was a confidential exchange in 1965 but so they're they're producing things like that. They're producing things like 24D An herbicide that's still used today on farms in the 1940s, chlorinated herbicide, that become very popular in that 40s, 50s, and 60s period. The problem is that by the 60s, research into this is showing that these chemicals are really problematic, especially 245T. During the Vietnam War, 245T and 24D are mixed together to create this herbicide called Agent Orange. And it's sprayed overseas during the Vietnam War in tremendous quantities, even though, as I write in the book, Monsanto is seeing in its own factory, its workers coming down with all this chloracne and problems. And they're even talking back and forth to other producers in the 60s about some of the toxicity of this, and yet selling it to the US government and it's being spread around the world and into Vietnam uh, in ways that are still affecting communities today in Vietnam. But but the whistle's kind of blown in the 60s on that. And I, and I just want to end with Roundup, and then we can pick up our conversation. That is when Roundup is created in 1970. That's when glyphosate is created. It is a kind of alternative to these more toxic chlorinated compounds of the 1950s and 60s. Monsanto wants to find something that's more environmentally friendly in many ways. And it comes up with glyphosate in 1970 in a, in a way to kind of move away from 245T and other compounds that are becoming, being pulled off markets because of their toxicity. And by that point, they're big into ag. By the 60s and 70s, this is, this is who they are. Ag chemicals is a huge part of their portfolio. They're producing a lot of other things, plastics. Synthetic rubber, you name it. All sorts of petrochemical products. But agricultural chemicals is a big part of it.
1: You mentioned the corporatization of agriculture. What role did American corporations play in the Green Revolution? The likes of Rockefeller, Monsanto, and other actors such as Norman Borlaug?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think, you know, I mentioned this in the book. At the same time that you're having that New Deal expansion, and then into the 40s, you know, that the kind of government programs that are, you could argue, whether it be the extension service or other things, kind of teaching factory farming as the future, you know, heavy synthetic inputs, heavy mechanization, you know, really thinking about farming as a business. And so just to be clear on that, you know, you think about the teens and, and before that in the US, you know, a lot of people are thinking about farms just having all sorts of other values. It's home, you know, it's it's for producing food for, for your family. It's for producing maybe food for the community. Um, this business turn, and I, I'm actually, for, for, your, for your listeners out here, in some ways, I'm building off the great work of a scholar named Deborah Fitzgerald. For those who are interested in kind of the, the, the birth of this kind of factory like farming mindset in the US, it's called Every Farm a Factory, is the name of the book. It came out in the early 2000s. Deborah Fitzgerald is at MIT in the United States, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And the book is excellent on showing you in the teens and twenties, how that logic took hold and how radical and different it was to think about farming in this way, you know? And and what she points out is that farmers are taking ideas from the industrial revolution, the second industrial revolution. You think about Ford's factories of producing all these new cars, the Model T and these assembly line plants in, in Michigan and other places. And they're adapting that. They're saying, well, you know what? We need, to, we need to apply this down on the farm. That's this idea of every farm a factory. That's taking hold in the US. But you're right. By the 40s, the US is also thinking about, well, how do we export this model overseas? And I will say that it, there's a very human story to this. I mean, you think about people like Norman Borlaug and others. I mean, when you look at what they're doing, for some of these people, there's this real belief that if we practice these techniques that it'll help feed the world, right? Um, That it'll do these these profound things and it'll be good for farmers and it'll be good for rural communities and that will eliminate poverty. If you look at the early portion of the Green Revolution, which really dates back to the 40s in Mexico, these attempts to create high-yielding varieties of wheat specifically and then other crops down the road that Norman Borlaug, again, this agricultural scientist who's part of this program called MAP. The Mexico Agricultural Program, which is the the beginning of really the Green Revolution in '43. Another great book by my friend uh, uh, Tori Olson, uh, T O R E Olson O L S S O N, that is called Agrarian Crossings, is about that birth of the Green Revolution. Tori is at uh, the University of Tennessee here in in the United States, and his book is fabulous because it details. The fact that in that early stage of the 40s, there were discussions among people who were beginning this kind of green revolution, this effort to kind of expand agricultural practices in the United States to to, to other places and create high yielding varieties about eliminating poverty. You know, that there were people in there who were saying, you know what, it's not just about producing more or increasing yield. That, you know, if we're going to fix these problems, we're going to have to address the underlying root causes of poverty, which includes, you know, land ownership issues and, 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 and land reform and things like that. That mission, unfortunately, in the Green Revolution becomes muted over time. Right. And though there are voices calling for that over time, the argument for yield, the argument for no, 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 it's all about productivity. That's the key thing that we need to do. If we, if we produce more food and more productivity, well, that's going to eliminate issues of famine and issues of food insecurity around the world. That debate is playing out in the 40s and 50s, and by the 50s and 60s, we can see very clearly that the latter wins out. You know, that, that trying to address these land reform issues or the other issues of poverty becomes not the center key of the Green Revolution. It's really just about exporting these high-yielding varieties, that ultimately, uh, of crops that are ultimately going to be heavily, heavily dependent on petrochemicals and petrochemical uh, inputs. And so we can see the roots of that in the 40s, the expansion of that in the 50s, 60s into India and beyond, the Philippines, other places, that model. And productivity becomes the mantra of the time. You could argue that the Cold War is, of course, a huge part of this, right? As a historian, what we see very clearly is that likes this vision, especially diplomats, of exporting American agriculture this way, because it's a very visual spectacle. The argument that uh, another great scholar, I keep referencing other books, but maybe this will be helpful for people, uh, a scholar here named Nick Cullither at the University of Indiana, he's written a great book called, I think it's called The Hungry World. And in that, he talks about that this was really about displaying the superiority of American capitalism, right? By having crops that looked so prolific and, and physically in fields would kind of wow farmers, you know, to, to, to adopt these techniques. And at, an, at a time where the United States is, of course, in this kind of gridlock battle with the Soviet Union and trying to project capitalism as being the preferred system of economic organization for other places around the world. And so so that green revolution, and then back to Monsanto, was an opportunity for companies like Monsanto. Wow, we're going to be expanding this style of heavy petrochemical input agriculture, not only to Mexico, but potentially the entire world. Okay, our market that we were excited about, you know, in the United States is now global. and it represented a huge opportunity for chemical companies in the U S because all of this was going to be based on heavy petrochemical inputs, right? What I call, by the way, scavenger capitalism in the book, I call it scavenger capitalism because all of this, whether you're talking about the synthetic fertilizers or the herbicides or the pesticides are going to be coming from petrochemical feedstocks that these chemical companies are scavenging from the waste piles of the oil industry. You know, all these things are made from petrochemical feedstocks that are ultimately coming from oil. It's the byproduct, the waste of oil. So I call it scavenger capitalism because it's really, you know, these companies kind of scavenging on dead plants, essentially, right? This oil, but but the waste of the oil industry. And I'll emphasize that here and then then I'll shut up for a second, but in an era of climate change, recognizing that dependency is so key this that we're so tied in our agriculture to this form of scavenger capitalism if we're going to get off fossil fuels right it's not just about how we're going to power our cars or power our our power plants but all that waste product of the oil industry which is sustaining the way we grow agriculture around the world today we're going to have to figure out a way to do it without that but at the time It seemed like a great market opportunity for chemical companies like Monsanto.
1: Yeah, no, thank you so much for that. And, you know, just to add there on the context of geopolitics, at this time during these decades, we see the inception of India as a nation state where Nehru, the first prime minister, is confronted with this idea of, you know, how to feed hundreds of millions of people.
0: And it becomes a great impetus for people who are promoting this style of agriculture. Look, there's the famines. This is what, why we have to do this. The context, as you said, in the other places is spurring that. Although I would, I would, again, point people back to Cullither's book because he does such great analysis of, okay, well, if the goal of the Green Revolution was to eliminate famine, well, where do we see still problems of food insecurity, right? And precisely in the same locations where, where this, this system was deployed, and that's because of exactly what I said, and going back to to Tori Olson's book, that what unfortunately, you know, it's a very simple explanation here in a way. If you're not going to address the underlying issues of poverty, which the Green Revolution didn't do, right, whether it be from, as I said, land reform or the other issues that that I think matter, or thinking about export agriculture versus sustainable agriculture that supports populations, then you're not going to come out of the Green Revolution eliminating famine, you know. And and I think that's where we stand on this. And Color Theory does some great analysis of kind of, you know, the promises of all this. was going to feed the world and where we ultimately ended up. But, you know, Monsanto, back to Monsanto, this became a great, as you said, these problems of famine around the world or whatever became a, a great talking point for them. It became a great way to sell their products in this kind of altruistic language of we're, we're, we're here to feed the world. And I do believe, and I write this in the book, that some people who maybe didn't understand the history as well, or maybe didn't study the past as closely as, as maybe others, I think some of them earnestly believe this, right? That they're working inside this company trying to feed the world. I'm not saying all of them did, but you can see at times this, this ideology, this is almost a religion inside the company itself and the way that, that it inspires people to action, even though, of course, we're going to see lots of problems with the systems uh, of the deployment of the, G, the G, these genetically engineered seeds in the 90s and, and onwards, so I, I just didn't want to emphasize that because I think this is a very human story. You know, it's not all a story of people out to just profit and try and destroy the planet. Although you'll see that in this book, there are definitely some unethical choices made. There's a more fuzzy area of people who buy into a certain logic, even though it's false. <laughs> And commit themselves to a life dedicated to this perpetuating this model that ultimately we can now see has all these problems. And I think that's really more of the story in some ways. It's a precautionary story about you know, not getting too caught up in in thinking about these technocratic fixes to problems that probably have that, that probably need to be solved through social policy and other things, right?
1: Yeah, that perfectly brings me on to my next point, which is about the legal history, you know. How is it all legally possible and legitimate? for such agrochemicals to be marketized? And also, more shockingly, how was it all legally possible to patent seeds?
0: That's a great question. So let's keep the story going, right? We've created Roundup in the 1970s, but no, we haven't mentioned anything about genetic engineering. The Green Revolution is unfolding, and the Green Revolution, as a result, is spreading synthetic fertilizers, this kind of factory-style farming all across the world, But as of yet, we don't have genetically engineered seeds and Monsanto doesn't own a single genetically engineered seed yet. That story begins in earnest in the 70s and 80s. Monsanto is going to become a big player, but many other companies are also going to be competing in this area of agricultural genetic engineering. And if you're trying to think about when's the date where that really takes off, 70s and 80s is the starting point really in many ways for that story. It's in part because of great innovative kind of science coming out of Stanford and other institutions in the early 1970s, where gene splicing technology has been perfected in ways where you can take a gene from a bacterium and put it into a plant or put it into another species. And companies like Monsanto are seeing this as a potential blockbuster opportunity. Wow, this new science of genetic engineering, maybe we should invest in it. One of the interesting things I found for your listeners that, that I didn't expect to see is why Monsanto and these ag companies, you know, started these companies that were pr- producing chemicals would be the, chemi- the companies that would go into this genetic engineering. And one of the answers that really struck me in the archives was the energy crisis. In the United States, specifically, of course, the global energy crisis in many ways, but in the U.S. in the 1970s the OPEC oil embargo of 1973 and 74, and then the Iranian revolution in 79 and the kind of disruptions of oil trade in in the Middle East leads to just skyrocketing oil prices. Now, I just told you that everything that Monsanto is creating, from their plastics to to the herbicides and pesticides they're creating, come from oil. And so they write very clearly, "Uh uh-oh, 80% of what we make comes from these petrochemical feedstocks. we got to pivot. And that's why companies like Monsanto take hundreds of millions of dollars and say, we've got to get out of this business of just making petrochemicals, you know, commodity chemicals and invest in a a growth area to get out of this cul-de-sac of fossil fuels. In other words, they knew it then that the dependence on fossil fuels was a dead end and they tried to pivot into biotechnology, Um, of course oil prices would drop down in the 80s and maybe the scare of the 70s was exaggerated at that time. You know, we've now since seen oil production increase because of fracking and other things. But the point here is that they saw that in the 70s and that's what made them move into genetic engineering. They needed a growth area where they could make bigger profits. And so that's when Monsanto and other companies, chemical companies did this. And they start trying to create crops that do two things. One, crops that can produce their own pesticide, BT crops, which would be familiar to people in the Punjab, you know, these are crops that have a gene from uh, a bacterium called Bacillus, Bacillus thuringiensis. That's BT. That is this natural occurring bacteria that produces a pesticide that works as an insecticide. They wanted to find a way to take the gene from that bacterium and put it into plants so that it could produce its own pesticide. But the other bigger and more important project for them was figuring out a way to make crops tolerate heavy spraying of glyphosate, Roundup, their branded and patented trademark product, Roundup. And those would be Roundup ready crops. They succeeded on both fronts. By 1996, both BT crops and Roundup ready crops would emerge in the United States. And within a matter of a couple of decades, it'd be 90% adoption rate. Of this stuff here in the U.S., just incredible for soybeans, cotton, and corn. But to your point, what was unclear was, what is this legal?" And by legal, I mean one of the questions that that came up was, "Okay, so the way that we're going to be able to do this is, we have to put this into seeds. You know, this technology is going to have to go through seeds. Can we patent seeds? You know, and." Will they be protected, (laughs) this technology, intellectual property-wise? And this was a huge debate. You know, it wasn't clear. But one of the, I think, critical moments for listeners, specifically in the U.S., that would pave the way globally for this was the Supreme Court case. The case was initially uh, initiated in the 1970s, and it was started by a man named Chakra Bharti, who worked for General Electric. And he was trying to produce a bacteria, I believe, that could clean up oil spills. So again, the human story here, that sounds like a good thing. And he's genetically engineering this microorganism to be able to clean up oil spills. Well, the question becomes, you can't patent that because it's life. And it goes all the way to the Supreme Court. And in 1980, the case is called Diamond versus Chakrabarty. The Supreme Court decided in favor of Chakrabarty that his technology, this transformation of this microorganism, was a unique invention that under patent law, uh, he could pursue patent protections. Now, interestingly... There's a great book, and your readers are going to be well-read by the end of this. Uh, Your listeners are going to be well-read by the end of all this. This is Jack Ralph Kloppenberg's Jr.'s book, First, The Seed, The Political Economy of Plant Biotechnology. He is a uh, professor of rural sociology in the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and Kloppenberg... And his book says that, yeah, the the Chakrabarty case was good, but even then there was a debate. Well, does this apply to plants, you know, and does this apply to seeds? Because it was so revolutionary, the idea that you could do this. There have been plant protection laws in the United States prior to this court case, but this was something really radically new. Can you have a kind of patent protection that's specifically for these genetically modified plants? And so the Barty case comes out, but Kloppenberg points out that it takes another couple of years in the courts for this to be tried out of of whether this applies for plants. And I think it's by 83 that ultimately those court cases, you know, uh, make clear that this is going to be allowed, that this is going to be legal and something that can be adopted. And that is when, in the 80s and 90s, you see, wow, we've got this kind of green light from the federal courts. You also have the 80s in the US, this is Reaganomics, this is Ronald Reagan, Republican president who is all about deregulation and opening up the door for corporate. You're talking about the, the, the debates in India today, you know, about corporatization of, of agriculture. Well, this is a period in the US where it's like open the doors for corporate America and a very dereg administration. So on top of the Supreme Court case, you've got an administration that also paves the way for regulation. It basically says in the US in the 80s and and then into the Bush administration of the 90s, a series of of regulations are put out that say, genetically engineered crops are not going to be regulated any differently than crops that are are bred conventionally uh, in the United States, which was kind of jaw dropping to many people who said, well, wait a minute, this is a whole new technology. How could you let that happen? But that was a part product of that particular political moment. Uh, the, the term was that there was substantial equivalence, the quote, substantial equivalence between the nature of these new biotech plants and the conventionally bred plants. That there's no need to regulate them any differently. And so, boom, you've got this like talk about green light on top of green light this explosion. Of investment in green, uh, genetically engineering technology, Monsanto starts buying up seed companies in the early nineteen nineties. They're going gangbusters. A company that didn't own a single seed company in the nineteen seventies by the end of the nineteen nineties is the largest seed company in the world. Uh, really, the early two thousands, largest seed company in the world. That's how swift they pivoted from making all these chemicals, and they still make their chemicals. You know, they're making Roundup. And that's how they made a lot of money. They packaged their Roundup with these seeds that are designed to tolerate Roundup. And Roundup, it becomes this billion dollar herbicide. It makes over half of their revenues by the end of the 2000s. Was there money in this? You bet you there was money in this. I talked to the person who managed the Roundup brand from Monsanto. And even in the early years, before these first seeds come out, he says, this is a quote. He said that the... uh, the profit margins were disgustingly high. Like, just they couldn't believe how much money they were making off this. And thus is born the GE revolution, the genetic engineering revolution that we all live with today, where, where you know, uh, around the world, uh, a lot of these crops have been adopted, including in India, where BT's technology has taken off.
1: I have so many questions after just hearing that, but I'll try really hard just to narrow it down to maybe three. How does this lead to the vicious cycle of debt that farmers have found themselves in? How did Monsanto and other companies enforce this seed patent? And, you know, to what extent do these corporate companies have ties with legislators and state officials to see all of this through?
0: So on the debt cycle even before genetically engineered seeds. And I think this is really important to emphasize when it comes to places like India, you know, I think it's easy to just to just point to genetically engineered seeds and and, and the problems of that as as the, as the root cause of all this. And, And there certainly are major problems with the kind of debt cycle that the, the GE seeds can, can create. But, but I think that this debt cycle goes back to the earlier history we talked about, you know, the, the, the expensive fertilizers inputs The expensive petrochemical inputs, even if you're not using crops that are genetically engineered to tolerate herbicides and things like that, that make this a very expensive way of farming. And, and, uh, you know, look, how do you spray those petrochemicals? Well, you got to have a big spray boom and you've got to have an often in in many cases, if you're working large farms, you're going to be buying bigger equipment and spraying equipment. And all of this is just is, is putting heavy burdens on farmers in terms of the cost of doing all this, which can lead people into a cycle of a situation where they're they're suffering. In the United States, what's happened, and and I know this has happened in other places, is those seed prices have just exploded in cost over time. And one of the problems is that it's a kind of vicious cycle. What happened with Roundup Ready technology is it was introduced and farmers started spraying so much glyphosate on top of their crops because they could. It would kill all the weeds and then their crops would survive. But as they did that, the weeds developed resistance. You know, a fifth grader could predict this that you're putting all this selection pressure on nature. Weeds adapted. And so farmers were forced, they've, they've already retooled their operations, right? They now have these big spring booms and all of this other stuff. And they've now committed to this new form of farming. And when weeds start developing resistance, what are you gonna do? Well, Monsanto says, well, now you gotta buy our next round of seeds. Seeds that not only are, tolerate Roundup, but seeds that tolerate dicamba, a chemical that you know, goes back to the 1960s that can be used to kill those weeds that are become resistant to Roundup. Well, now you've got stacked traits. So you've gotta buy a new suite of seeds, And by the way, we should mention that too. Monsanto creates these agreements in the 1990s called technology use agreements that farmers have to sign if they're gonna use these GE technologies. And what it says is you cannot save your seed at the end of harvest, which is what farmers have done forever, right? is they would grow their crops and then save a certain portion of their seeds and then replant those seeds. In the case of cotton, for example, and things like that. And places like India, the United States, everywhere. When this becomes adopted, that people have to sign these TUAs, it creates a really restrictive system so that you have to keep coming back and buying a new set of seeds every year. It's a huge expense that you didn't have before because traditionally you buy a good set of seeds and if it grew well, well, then great, you, you save some of your seeds and you maybe improve upon them, but you, you don't have to constantly have to buy that seed every year. Monsanto developed that system because they knew that this was the best way to make money. They called it the Microsofting of Monsanto. They wanted it to be like software. They saw companies like Microsoft making lots of money. You know, Think about all those updates. you got to buy the next iPhone. you got to buy the next thing. It was the same model. And that's that cycle that you're talking about, you know, you're never able to kind of get ahead of it. And in the case of herbicide resistance to this stuff, it became really problematic in the United States, because not only now do you have to buy this new seed that's going to have new traits, and of course, it's going to be expensive to deal with your weed problem, but you got to buy more herbicides, because you've got to use glyphosate, but now you got to use dicamba on top of it, too. So your herbicide costs, which were going down, are now going back up. So I think that's one of the vicious cycles we see in the story for sure, that farmers feel like they're not being buying solutions, they're buying problems <laughs> that ultimately Monsanto is positioning itself to solve over and over. And that's a great business model for Monsanto, but it's a terrible business model for farmers who constantly are in that cycle of having to come back and back and back. I often say if Monsanto actually fixed people's food ag problems, then there would be no point for them to have to come back to them, you know? And that's part of the deal is recognizing that, that solving agricultural problems is never really the goal of a company like Monsanto, because in many ways, if we look at the history, and I don't want to be too glib here, but I think, you know, you see them in a a position of of benefiting in a way from selling these technologies that are designed to fix problems they created, right? The weed resistance issues they created in the first place. So, So there's that cycle. And you mentioned it. It's this isn't just being enforced by Monsanto necessarily. Well, it is being enforced by Monsanto, but what I really see in this book was the way that they created like kind of what seemed to be somewhat unethical ways to like make this system work. Um, for example, they created a hotline, and I don't know if this exists in India or not, but it does exist in the United States, where you can call one eight hundred Roundup and rat out your neighbor if you think they have been saving seeds illegally, that i.e. They, they came into possession of seed that they didn't pay for. As you said, the gray market of the seed dealing. Monsanto created this like network of, of a hotline where you could call in. And, and if any of your listeners wanna call that number, if they have access to it, it's a US number here, I don't know what it might be internationally, but 1-800-ROUNDUP here, you can listen to it. And it says, you know, if you need to report misuse of seed you can do so now by pressing two. And then the next line says, your call will be anonymous, right? And this kind of, and you see this happening where it's this kind of tearing of the social fabric of farming country asunder as people are ratting out each other and this kind of surveillance system that's not just being done by detectives. And this is true, you, uh, Monsanto uh, hired detectives to go out and observe farms and to see if people were stealing seeds and things like that, but also turning neighbors on one another to try and make sure that this system worked. And then the last thing you said was state officials. It's a great point about all this. I mean, I kept saying, well, where the heck is all the regulators? Where is where is somebody stepping in on all this? And what you see in this book is a very close relationship between Monsanto and the USDA, the, the main agricultural agency here in the United States. In some ways you could argue that their missions are completely in tandem. There's also a kind of revolving door between people that are at the USDA or lobbying for the USDA and the company. And, you know, I, I used to think in the United States, the USDA was there to kind of oversee and make sure that Monsanto was being held in check. But in so many ways, I see them as, as working, almost walking in lockstep with one another. And you see this internationally. You see this very clearly that that Monsanto also working with the USDA's foreign arm, kind of the, the, the out, outreach of the USDA internationally, courting, agricultural ministers in, in, in places like Vietnam, where I spend a lot of time, and other places, to make these connections, even flying diplomats and foreign officials, you'll see this in the, in the latter part of the book, to Missouri, at great expense, these kind of lavish trips to Missouri to kind of court them and to show them the, the, the power and the benefits of this technology. And then once convinced, right, these things get approved for state use uh, inside countries. And you can see that deployment. Once again, that slogan of serving industry, which serves mankind. We don't have to convince everybody that GMOs are okay or that GE is okay. If we can convince in court with champagne and those kind of, you know, high-flying flights back to the United States, if you can convince just a select group of people, boom, you can change an entire food system. And you see that in this book in so many ways, Um, that kind of close courting, not only of USDA officials, but international ministers of agriculture in different parts of the world and bringing them specifically to Missouri. I mean, that's the thing that's weird for me Is the USDA. It seems like, OK, well, wait a minute. I mean, should you be in the business of basically taking people to a private corporation's headquarters, you know, and and wowing them that way? And, and, and then there is an even, even example in the book of journalists internationally being brought to Missouri to, quote, learn about the benefits of biotechnology and how to, how to basically broadcast the benefits of biotechnology. So not just courting agricultural ministers, but also journalists to teach them about why this is all beneficial.
1: It's absolutely jaw-dropping, everything you have mentioned. And it's very relatable and pertinent to the situation in Punjab, especially when we consider health and the alarmingly higher rates of cancer
0: you know, one of the challenges of this book was trying to figure out what causes cancer and what doesn't. And, and I told you I was a biochem major, so I, w- I went back and really wanted to look at the studies. And it's very difficult to unpack, if I'm just being honest with you, about what causes cancer and what doesn't. But I will say this. I mean, what we see in this era of kind of petrochemical explosion is just an inundation of our food system with compounds and chemicals that go back to the past, to the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. I mean, when I mentioned Roundup, this is a product that was created before the, really as the EPA is being created in the United States. You mentioned regulation, like 2,4-D, a very popular herbicide that Monsanto sold for a very long time, that many chemical companies still sell, and that is used on farms today, was the other half of Agent Orange. I mean, it was used in the 1940s, and we know that its toxicity profile is, is really high. And the scale at which it's being used to beat back weeds, especially weeds that are becoming more resistant to, this, to, to these products, it alarms me to a great extent, you know, to, to think about what are the potential health effects of all of this and what are the links? And I think you mentioned it very well. I think you're right to think about fertilizers, pesticides, insecticides, all the things that come together. And I get it that BT traits were designed to reduce insecticide use. And in some cases, it did that. But in other cases, you still see insecticides being used on top of crops that still have GE traits in them. And we see this kind of cocktail of chemicals being used now. That's what I would emphasize, is that what causes it, that's so difficult to unpack, precisely because we're we're using so many different varieties of things on our farms, all of which Acting in tandem could have systemic health effects in some way, right? And I think you're also right to talk about the farmers in Punjab and to talk about farmers particularly, because I, I, I consistently will read p- pieces in Forbes or other places where they say, well, you know, residues, pesticide residues in food is relatively low. And personally... I'm a person who does seek out organic uh, food and things like that precisely because of what I write about. And your listeners can take that for what it's worth. But having spent a decade looking at this, I try to limit my exposure to glyphosate. I try and limit my exposure to these pesticides, given a lot of the unknowns, given how fuzzy the science is on some of this stuff. But what I think drives me nuts is that how can one say that when you know that the farmers and the people that produce your food are clearly being exposed to these compounds at rates that are exorbitantly higher than that. Even if you do think that the residues don't cause you any harm. I mean, it just seems like such a a terrible line that I've seen in some of these articles to say, so don't worry about it that much, you know, it's, it's very low. But what about the people making your food, you know? And the people making cotton, your clothing and other things. If you care at all about other people, that make your life possible, then you should care about this petrochemical dependency that you're talking about in Punjab and you're talking about in other parts of the world. It is dangerous, and it's not just dangerous uh, to us as consumers, it's dangerous to the workers that are, that, are, that are doing hard work every day. And that I spent time with, in, you know, not only in the United States, but internationally, talking about this work. We have an obligation to end a system that is so reliant on this. And, and I'll say for one other reason too, Because again, all of this goes back to finite fossil fuels. And if we're serious about climate change on top of all this, and we're serious about COP26, about getting away from fossil fuels, we're going to have to grow our food differently. You know, you can't make 2,4-D and these other things without these petrochemicals that come from fossil fuels. So let's get real, you know. I think we have to have an awakening right now. Consumers, farmers alike, and and regulators, people in government, both in the United States and India and other parts of the world, that this is not our food future that we want. It is not a sustainable food future. We have to get back to to a pre-green revolution moment where we can think about food production in a more holistic way, where we're paying attention to soil, microorganisms, and we're paying attention to ways we can produce food without being so reliant on, on a chemical industry that again, goes back to an era when there was this oil boom, when it made sense to make every all of our food from, because oil was so cheap, you know, and it was just, it, it, I'm not blaming that moment. It made, you know, maybe people could justify it in that time, but we cannot justify that in our own time now.
1: Thank you so much, Professor G, for coming on and really outlining not only the history of Monsanto, but also the history of agrochemicals and fertilizers, that have completely transformed the industry of farming as we know it. And this episode means so much right now to me, and I know it does too for the entire Punjabi diaspora listening, because we know so well what devastation some of these policies, such as the Green Revolution and the chemicals, have had on our homeland. And I'd just like to conclude by saying that, although we did not directly reference Punjab in this conversation, it should be noted that, you know, Punjab, India's most important agricultural region, has the highest rates of fertilizer use and the highest rates of cancer. Also, that drug addiction and pharma suicides are incredibly high and the desertification of Punjab is tragically imminent. All of which the locals blame Zer, meaning poison, a reference to agrochemicals. And to learn more on this, please consider watching the documentary Toxification by British filmmaker Remed Reit, for which I will leave a link in the description of this episode. Thanks very much for listening. And last but not least, I would like to thank our sponsor, Sikh Student Learning, and the tens of thousands of followers across our social media channels that continue to motivate us to actively record and share Sikh history. We hope to continue to keep recording more podcasts and make more Sick History accessible in audio format. So if you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please share with others so that we can attract more supporters that in turn help us to generate more episodes. Thank you.